for the love of reading. Featuring selections from novels, complete short stories, poetry, and nonfiction. Read for you by Linda Pack. I'm going to read for you a story entitled The Mystery of the Pearl Necklace. It was published in 1926 and written by the Baroness Emma Orzi, who was one of the foremost creators of the classic mystery tale. The Baroness Orzi was a founding member of the Detection Club, a group of British mystery writers, including Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers, and G.K. Chesterton, which held regular dinner meetings in London in the 1930s. This was the golden age of detective fiction, and these writers codified a form of whodunits, which allowed the reader a chance to solve the mystery using exactly the same clues available to the detective. The members of this illustrious society promised to adhere to a strict set of principles in their writing and swore to this oath, which was written by Dorothy Sayers. Do you promise that your detectives shall well and truly detect the crimes presented to them, using those wits which it may please you to bestow upon them, and not replacing reliance on, nor making use of, divine revelation, feminine intuition, mumbo-jumbo, jiggery-pokery, coincidence, or act of God? Some of the greatest writers of all time took that vow, and they stuck to it. And one of them was the Baroness Orzi, a Hungarian-born British novelist and a playwright who came to fame and fortune for her series of novels featuring the Scarlet Pimpernel. But she also wrote scores of mystery novels. The Mystery of the Missing Necklace is a perfect exemplar of this entertaining and ingenious style of popular literature. This story features one of the Baroness Orzi's most popular characters, the old man in the corner, who was the very first armchair detective, that is, the first detective who solved the crime only using his powers of intellect and logic. The Baroness described him like this. He was in no way reminiscent of any other character in detective fiction. I thought of him in his horn-rimmed spectacles, of his cracked voice and dribbling nose, and above all, his lean, bony fingers fidgeting, always fidgeting with a bit of string. So... Let us meet the old man in the corner as he solves the puzzle presented to him by our narrator, journalist Polly Burton, from the Baroness Orsi's story collection Unraveled Knots. Here is the mystery of the missing necklace. The old man in the corner had a very curious theory about that mysterious affair of the pearl necklace 
and though it all occurred a few years ago, I am tempted to put his deductions down on record, because as far as I know, neither the police of this or any other country nor the public have ever found a satisfactory solution for what was undoubtedly a strange and mystifying adventure. I remembered the case quite well uh, when first he spoke to me about it one afternoon in what had become my favorite tea haunt in Fleet Street. The only thing I was not quite certain of was the identity of the august personage to whom the pearl necklace was to be presented. I did know, of course, that she belonged to one of the reigning families of Europe, and that she had been active and somewhat hot-headed and bitter opponent of the communist movement in her own countries, in consequence of which she and her husband had been the object of more than one murderous attack by the other side. It was on the occasion of the august lady's almost miraculous escape from a peculiarly well-planned and brutal assault that a number of ladies in England subscribed the sum of £15,000 for the purchase of an exquisite pearl necklace to be presented to her as a congratulatory gift. Rightly or wrongly, the donors of this princely gift feared that a certain well-known political organization on the continent would strive by every means in its power, fair or foul, to prevent this token of English goodwill from reaching the recipient. And also, as it chanced to happen, there had been, during the past few months, a large number of thefts of valuables on continental railways, and became a question of who should be entrusted by the committee of subscribers with the perilous risk of taking the necklace over for presentation the trouble being further enhanced by the fact that in those days the insurance companies barred one or two European countries from their comprehensive policies against theft and petty larceny, and that it was to one of those countries thus barred that the bearer of the £15,000 necklace would have to journey. Imagine the excitement, the anxiety, which reigned in the hearts of thousands of middle-class English women who had subscribed their might to the gift. The committee sat behind closed doors discussing the claims of various volunteers who were ready to undertake the journey. These worthy folk were quite convinced that certain well-known leaders of anarchical organizations would be on the lookout for the booty and would have special facilities for the theft of it at the frontier during the course of those endless customs and passport formalities for which that particular country was ever famous. Finally, the committee's choice fell upon a certain Captain Arthur Saunders, nephew of Sir Montague Bowden, who was the chairman of the Ladies' Committee. Captain Saunders had, it seems, travelled abroad a good deal, and his wife was foreign, Swedish, so it was understood. It was thought that if he went abroad now in the company of his wife, the object of their journey might be thought to be a visit to Mrs. Saunders' relations, and that the conveying of the pearl necklace to its destination might thus remain more or less a secret. 
The choice was approved by all of the subscribers, and it was decided that the captain and Mrs. Saunders should start by the 10 a.m. train for Paris on the 16th of March. Captain Saunders was to call the previous afternoon at a certain bank in Charing Cross, where the necklace was deposited, and there receive it as an almost sacred trust from the hands of the manager. Further, it was arranged that Mrs. Saunders should immediately on arrival in Paris send a wire to Mrs. Berners, a great friend of hers, who was the secretary of the committee, and, in fact, that she should keep the committee informed of Captain Saunders' well-being at all the more important points of the journey. And thus they started. But no news came from Paris on the 16th. At first, no anxiety was felt on that score, everyone being ready to surmise that the Calais-Paris train had been late in and that the Saunders it had perhaps only barely time to clear their luggage of the customs and catch the train deluxe, which would take them on via Cologne, without a chance of sending the promised telegram. But soon after midday of the 17th, Sir Montague Bowden had a wire from Mrs. Saunders from Paris saying, Arthur disappeared last night. Desperately anxious. Please come at once. Have booked a room for you here. Mary, Hotel Majestic. The news was terrifying. However, Sir Montague Bowden, with commendable zeal, at once wired to Mary, announcing his immediate departure for Paris, and as it was then too late for him to catch the afternoon continental train, he started by the evening one, travelling all night and arriving at the Hotel Majestic in the early morning. As soon as he had had a bath and some breakfast, he went in search of information. He found that the French police already had the affaire in hand, but they had not so far the slightest clue as to the mysterious disappearance of Le Capitaine Saunders. He found the management of the Majestic in a state of offended dignity, and Mrs. Saunders in one that verged on hysteria. But fortunately, he also found at the hotel a Mr. Hosberg, brother of Mrs. Saunders, a Swedish businessman of remarkable coolness and clearness of judgment, who promptly put him au fait with what had occurred. It seems that Mr. Hosberg was settled in business in Paris, and that he had hoped to catch a glimpse of his sister and brother-in-law on the evening of the 16th at the Gare du Nord on their way through to the east. But on that very morning, he'd received a telegram from Mary asking him to book a couple of rooms, a bedroom and a sitting room, for one night for them at the Hotel Majestic. This Mr. Hosberg did, glad enough that he would see something more of his sister than he had been led to hope. On the afternoon of the 16th, he was kept late at business and was unable to meet the Saunderses at the station, but toward nine o'clock, he walked round to the Majestic, hoping to find them in. Their room was on the third floor. Mr. Hosberg went up in the lift, and as soon as he had reached number 301, he became aware of a buzz of conversation coming from within, which, however, ceased as soon as he had pushed open the door. On entering the room, he saw that Captain Saunders had a visitor, a tall, thick-set man, 
who wore an old-fashioned heavy moustache and large gold-rimmed spectacles. At the sight of Mr. Hosberg, this man clapped his hat, a bowler, on his head, pulled his coat collar over his ears, and with a hasty, Well, so long, old man, I'll wait till tomorrow, spoken with a strong foreign accent, he walked rapidly out of the room and down the corridor. Hosberg stood for a moment in the doorway to watch the disappearing personage, but he did this without any ulterior motive or thought of suspicion. Then he turned back into the room and greeted his brother-in-law. Saunders seemed to Hosberg to be nervous and ill at ease. In response to the latter's inquiry after Mary, uh, he explained that she had remained in her room as as he had a man to see on business. Hosberg made some casual remark about this visitor, and then Mary Saunders came in. She, too, appeared troubled and agitated, and as soon as she had greeted her brother, she turned to her husband and asked very eagerly, "'Well, has he gone?' Saunders, giving a significant glance in Hosper's direction, replied with an obvious effort at indifference, "'Yes, yes, he's gone, uh, but he said he would be back tomorrow.' At which Mary seemed to give a sigh of relief." Sending some uncomfortable mystery, Hosberg uh, questioned her and also Saunders about their visitor, but could not elicit any satisfactory explanation. Oh, there is nothing mysterious about old Pasquier, was all either of them would say. He's such an old pal of Arthur's, Mary added lightly, and he's such an awful bore that I got Arthur to say that I was out so that he might get rid of him more quickly. Somehow Hosberg felt that these explanations were very lame. He could not get it out of his head that there was something mysterious about the visitor, and knowing the purpose of the Saunders's journey, he thought as well to give them a very serious word of warning about Continental Hotels generally, and to suggest that they should, after this stay in Paris, go straight through on the train deluxe and never halt again until the £15,000 necklace was safely in the hands of the august lady for whom it was intended." but both Arthur and Mary laughed at these words of warning. "'My dear fellow,' Arthur said, seemingly rather in a puff, "'we are not such mugs as you think us. Mary and I have travelled on the continent at least as much as you have and are fully alive to the dangers attendant upon our mission. As a matter of fact, the moment we arrived, I gave the necklace in its own padlock tin box.' just as I brought it over from England in charge of the hotel management, who immediately locked it up in their strong room. So even if good old Pasquier had designs on it, which I can assure you he has not, he would stand no chance of getting a hold of it. And now sit down, there's a good chap, and let's talk of something else. Only half reassured, Hasberg sat down and had a chat. But he did not stay long. Mary was obviously tired and soon said good night. Arthur offered to accompany his brother-in-law to the latter's lodgings in the Rue de Montsigny. I would like a walk, he said, before going to bed. So the two men walked out together, and Hosberg finally said good night to Arthur just outside his own lodgings. It was then close upon ten o'clock. The little party had agreed to spend the next day together, as the train deluxe did not go until the evening, 
and Hasberg had pre- promised to take a holiday from business. Before going to bed, he attended to some urgent correspondence, and he had just finished a letter when his telephone bell rang. To his horror, he heard his sister's voice speaking. "'Don't keep Arthur up so late, Herman,' she said. "'I am dog-tired, and I can't go to sleep till he returns.' "'Arthur?' he replied. "'But Arthur left me at my door two hours ago.' "'He has not returned,' she insisted, "'and I am getting anxious.' "'Of course you are, but he can't be long now. "'He must have turned into a cafe and forgot the time. "'Do ring me up as soon as he comes in.' "'Unable to rest, however, and once more vaguely anxious, "'Hasberg went hastily back to the Majestic. "'He found Mary nearly distracted with anxiety, "'and he himself felt anything but reassured, "'but he did not know how to comfort her. "'At one time he went down into the hall "'to ascertain whether anything was known to the hotel "'about Saunders's movements earlier in the evening.' But at this hour of the night there was only the night porter and the watchman about, and they knew nothing of what had occurred before they came on duty. There was nothing for it but to await the morning as calmly as possible. This was difficult enough, as Mary Saunders was evidently in a terrible state of agitation. She was quite certain that something tragic had happened to her husband, but Hosberg tried in vain to get her to speak of the mysterious visitor— she had, from whom had first aroused his own suspicions. Mary persisted in asserting that the visitor was just an old friend of Arthur's and that no suspicion of any kind could possibly rest on him. In the early morning, Hosberg went off to the nearest commissariat of police. They took the matter in hand without delay and within the hour had obtained some valuable information from the personnel of the hotel. To begin with... It was established that at about ten minutes past ten the previous evening, that is to say, a quarter of an hour or so after Hosberg had parted from Arthur Saunders outside his own lodgings, the latter had returned to the Majestic and at once asked for the tin box which he had deposited in the bureau. There was some difficulty in acceding to his request because the clerk who was in charge of the keys of the strong room could not at once be found. However, Monsieur le Capitaine was so insistent that the search was made for the clerk, who presently appeared with the keys, and after the usual formalities, handed over the tin box to Saunders, who signed a receipt for it in the book. Hosberg had, since then, identified the signature, which was quite clear and incontestable. Saunders then went upstairs, refusing to take the lift, and five minutes later he came down again, nodded to the hall porter, and went out of the hotel. No one had seen him since, but during the course of the morning, the valet on the fourth floor had found an empty tin box in the gentleman's cloakroom. This box was produced, and to her unutterable horror, Mary Saunders recognized it as the one which had held the pearl necklace. The whole of this evidence, as it gradually came to light, was a staggering blow, both to Mary and to Hosberg himself, because until this moment neither of them had thought that the necklace was in jeopardy. They both believed that it was safely locked up in the strong room of the hotel. Hosberg now feared the worst. He blamed himself terribly for not having made more certain of the mysterious visitor's identity. 
he had not yet come to the point of accusing his brother-in-law, in his mind, of a conspiracy to steal the necklace, but frankly, at this stage, he did not know what to think. Saunders' conduct had, to say the least, been thoroughly, extremely puzzling. Why had he elected to spend the night in Paris when all the arrangements had been made for him and his wife to travel straight through? Who was the mysterious visitor with the walrus moustache, vaguely referred to by both Arthur and Mary as Old Pasquier? And above all, why had Arthur withdrawn the necklace from the hotel strong room where it was quite safe, and with it in his pocket, walked about the streets of Paris at that hour of the night? Hosberg was quite convinced that old Pasquier knew something about the whole affair. But strangely enough, Mary persisted in asserting that he was quite harmless and an old friend of Arthur's who was beyond suspicion. When further pressed with questions, she declared that she had no idea where the man lodged and that, in fact, she believed he had left Paris that same evening en route for Brussels, where he was settled in business. Inquiry amongst the personnel of the hotel revealed the fact that Captain Saunders' visitor had been seen by the hall porter when he came in soon after half-past eight, and asked whether Le Capitaine Saunders had finished dinner. His question being answered in the affirmative, he went upstairs, refusing to take the lift. Half an hour or so later, he was seen by one of the waiters in the lounge, hurriedly crossing the hall and finally by the two boys in attendance at the swing doors when he went out of the hotel. All agreed that the man was very tall and thick-set, that he wore a heavy moustache and a pair of gold-rimmed spectacles. He had on a bowler hat and an overcoat with a collar pulled up right to his ears. The hall porter, who himself spoke English fairly well, was under the impression that the man was not English, although he made his inquiries in that language. In addition to all these investigations, the commissaire de police on his second visit to the hotel was able to assure Hasberg that all the commissariats in and around Paris had been communicated with by telephone as to ascertain whether any man answering to Saunders' description had been injured during the night in a street accident and been taken somewhere for shelter. Also, that a description of the necklace had already been sent around to all the pawn shops throughout the country. The police were also sharply on the lookout for a man with a walrus moustache, but so far without success. And Mary Saunders obstinately persisted in her denial of any knowledge about him. Arthur, she said, sometimes saw old Pasquier in London. But she did not know anything about him, neither what his nationality was or where he lodged. She did not know when he had left London nor where he could be found in Paris. All that she knew, so she said, was that his name was Pasquier, that he was in business in Brussels, and therefore concluded that he was Belgian. Even to her own brother, she would not say more. Although he succeeded in making her understand how strange her attitude must appear to both the police and to her friends, and what harm she was doing to her husband. But at this she burst into floods of tears and swore that she knew nothing about Pasquier's whereabouts, and that she believed him to be innocent of any attempt to steal the necklace or to injure Arthur. There was nothing more to be said for the presence. And it was then that Hosberg sent the telegram 
to Montague Bowden in his sister's name because he felt that someone less busy than himself should look after the affair and be a comfort to Mary, whose mental condition appeared pitiable in the extreme. In his first interview, he was able to assure Sir Montague that everything had been done to trace the whereabouts of Arthur Saunders, and also of the necklace, which the unfortunate man had been custodian. And it was actually while the two men were talking the whole case over that Hosberg received an intimation from the police that they believed the missing man had been found. At any rate, would Monsieur give himself the trouble to come round to the commissariat at once? This, of course, Hosberg did, accompanied by Sir Montague. And, as at the commissariat, in their horror, they found the unfortunate Saunders in a terrible condition. Briefly, the commissaire explained to them that about a quarter past ten last night, an agent de police making his rounds, saw a man crouching in the angle of a narrow, blind alley that leads out of the Rue de Montsigny. On being shaken up by the agent, the man struggled to his feet, but he appeared quite dazed and unable to reply to any of the questions that were put to him. He was then conveyed to the nearest commissariat, where he spent the night. He was obviously suffering from loss of memory and could give no account of himself, nor were any papers of identification found on him, not even a visiting card. But close behind him, on the pavement where he was crouching, the agent had picked up a handkerchief which was saturated with chloroform. The handkerchief bore the initials A.S. The man, of course, was Arthur Saunders. What had happened to him it was impossible to ascertain. He certainly did not appear to be physically hurt, although from time to time when Mr. Hosberg or Sir Montague tried to question him, he passed his hand across the back of his head and an expression of pathetic puzzlement came into his eyes. His two friends, after the usual formalities of identification, were allowed to take him back to the Hotel Majestic, where he was restored to the arms of his anxious wife. The English doctor, hastily summoned, could not find any trace of injury about the body, only the head appeared rather tender when touched. The doctor's theory was that Saunders had probably been sandbagged first and then rendered more completely insensible by means of the chloroformed handkerchief, and that excitement, anxiety, and the blow to the head had caused temporary loss of memory, which quietude and good nursing would soon put right. In the meanwhile, of the £15,000 necklace, there was not the slightest trace. Unfortunately, the disappearance of so valuable a piece of jewellery was one of those cases that could not be kept from public knowledge. The matter was, of course, in the hands of the French police, and they had put themselves in communication with their English confrères, and the consternation not to say the indignation amongst the good ladies who had subscribed the money for the gift of the august lady was unbounded. Everyone was blaming everybody else. The choice of Captain Saunders as the accredited messenger was now severely criticized. Pointed questions were asked as to his antecedents, as to his wife's foreign relations, and it was soon found that very little was known about either. 
Of course, everyone knew that he was Sir Montague Bowden's nephew, and that, thanks to his uncle's influence, he had obtained remunerative and rather important post in the office of one of the big insurance companies. But what his career had been before that, no one knew. Some said that he had fought in South Africa and later on had been correspondent for one of the great dailies during the Russo-Japanese War, although there seemed no doubt that he had been something of a rolling stone. Rather tardily, the committee was taken severely to task for having entrusted so important a mission to a man who was either a coward or a thief or both. For at first, no one doubted that Saunders had met a confederate in Paris and had handed the necklace over to him, whilst he himself enacted a farce of being waylaid, chloroformed and robbed, and subsequently of losing his memory. But presently, another version of the mystery was started by some amateur detective, and it found credence with quite a good many people. This was that Sir Montague Bowden had connived at the theft with Mrs. Saunders' relations, that the man with the walrus moustache did not exist at all, or was in very truth a harmless old friend of Captain Saunders, and that it was Hosberg who had induced his brother-in-law to withdraw the necklace from the hotel strongroom and to bring it to the Rue de Monsigny, that, in fact, it was that same perfidious Swede who had waylaid the credulous Englishman, chloroformed and robbed him of the precious necklace. In the meanwhile, the police in England had, of course, been communicated with by their French confrères, but before they could move in the matter or enjoin discretion on all concerned, an enterprising young man on the staff of the Express Post had interviewed Miss Elizabeth Spicer, who was the parlour-maid at the Saunders's flat in Sloane Square, London. That young lady, it seems had something to say about a gentleman named Pasquier, who was not an infrequent visitor at the flat. She described him as a fine, tall gentleman who wore large gold-rimmed spectacles and a full military moustache. It seems that the last time Miss Elizabeth saw him was two days before her master and mistress' departure abroad. Mr. Pasquier had called late that evening and stayed until past ten o'clock. When Elizabeth was rung for in order to show him out, he was saying goodbye to the captain in the hall, and she heard him say, in his funny foreign way, as she put it, "'Well, I shall be in Paris as soon as you. Think it over, my friend.' And on the top of that came a story told by Henry Tidy, Sir Montague Bowden's butler. According to him... Captain Saunders called at Sir Montague Bowden's house in Londis Street on the afternoon of the 15th. The two gentlemen remained closeted together in the library for nearly an hour when Tidy was summoned to show the visitor out. Sir Montague, it seems, went to the front door with his nephew, and as the latter finally wished him goodbye, Sir Montague said to him, "'Oh, my dear boy, you can take it from me. "'There's nothing to worry about. "'And in any case, I'm afraid that it is too late "'to make any fresh arrangements.' "'It's because of Mary,' the captain rejoined. "'She's made herself quite ill over it.' "'A journey will do her good,' Sir Montague went on pleasantly. "'But if I were you, I would have a good talk with your brother-in-law. "'He must know his Paris well. "'Take my advice and spend the night at the Majestic.' You can always get rooms there. 
This conversation Tidy heard quite distinctly, and he related the whole incident both to the journalist and to the police. After that, the amateur investigators of crime were divided into two camps. There were those who persisted in thinking that Pasquier and Saunders, and possibly Mrs. Saunders also, had conspired together to steal the necklace, and that Saunders had acted the farce of being waylaid and robbed and losing his memory, and they based their deduction on Elizabeth Spicer's evidence and on Mary Saunders' extraordinary persistence in trying to shield the mysterious Pasquier. But other people, getting a hold of the butler Henry Tidy's story, deduced from it that it was indeed Sir Montague Bowden who had planned the whole thing in conjunction with Hosberg, since it was he who had persuaded Saunders to spend the night in Paris, thus giving his accomplice the opportunity of assaulting Saunders and stealing the necklace. To these wiseacres, old Pasquier was indeed a harmless old pal of Arthur's, whose presence that evening at the Majestic was either a fable invented by Hosberg or one quite innocent in its purpose. In vain did Sir Montague try to explain away Tidy's evidence. Arthur, he said, had certainly called upon him that last afternoon, but what he had seemed worried about was his wife's health. He feared that she would not be strong enough to undertake the long journey without a break, so Sir Montague advised him to spend the night in Paris, and in any case to talk the matter over with Mary's brother. The conversation overheard by Tidy could certainly admit of this explanation, but it did not satisfy the many amateur detectives who preferred to see a criminal in the chairman of the committee rather than a harmless old gentleman as Hosberg, as eager as themselves to find a solution to the mystery. And while people argued and wrangled, there was no news of the necklace, and none of the men of the wa- none of with news of the man with the walrus mustache. No doubt that worthy had by now shaved off his hirsute adornment and grown a beard. He had certainly succeeded in evading the police. Whether he had gone to Brussels or succeeded in crossing the German frontier, no one could say. His disappearance certainly bears out the theory of his being a guilty party with the connivance of Saunders as against the bowden Hosberg theory. As for the necklace, it had probably already been taken to pieces and the pearls would be presently disposed of one by one to some unscrupulous continental dealers when the first hue and cry after them had died away. Captain Saunders was said to be slowly recovering from his loss of memory and subsequent breakdown. Everyone at home was waiting to hear what explanation he would give of his amazing conduct in taking the necklace out of the hotel strong room late at night and sallying forth with it into the streets of Paris at that hour. The explanation came, after a fortnight of suspense, in a letter from Mary to her friend Mrs. Berners, the secretary of the committee. Arthur, she said, had told her on that fateful evening, after he parted from Mr. Hosberg in the Rue de Montsigny, that he had felt restless and anxious about what the latter had told him on the subject of foreign hotels, and was suddenly seized with the idea that the necklace was not safe in the care of the management of the Majestic, 
because there would come a moment when he would have to claim the tin box and this would probably be handed over to him when the hall of the hotel was crowded and the eyes of expert thieves would then follow his every movement. Therefore, he went back to the hotel claimed the tin box, and as the latter was large and cumbersome, he got rid of it in one of the cloakrooms of the hotel, slipped the necklace in its velvet case in the pocket of his overcoat, and went out with the intention of asking Hosberg to take care of it for him, and only to hand it back to him when, on the following evening, the train deluxe was on the point of starting. He had been in sight of Hasberg's lodgings when, without the slightest warning, a dull blow on the back of his head, coming he knew not whence, robbed him of consciousness. This explanation, however, was voted almost unanimously to be very lame, and it was on the whole as well that the Saunderses had decided to remain abroad for a time. The ladies especially and above all, those who had put their money together for the necklace were very bitter against him. On the other hand, Sir Montague Bowden was having a very rough time of it. He had already had one or two very unpleasant word tussles with some outspoken friends of his, and there was talk of a slander action that would certainly be a cause celebre when it came on. Thus the arguments went on in endless succession until one day, well do I remember the excitement that spread throughout the town as soon as the incident became known. There was a terrible row in one of the big clubs in Piccadilly. Sir Montague Bowden was insulted by one of his fellow members. He was called a thief and asked what share he was getting out of the sale of the necklace. Of course, the man who spoke in this unwarranted fashion was drunk at the time, but nevertheless it was a terrible position for Sir Montague, because as his opponent grew more and more abusive, and he himself more and more indignant, he realized that he had practically no friends who would stand by him in this dispute. Some of the members tried to stop the row, and others appeared indifferent, but no one sided with him, or returned abuse for abuse on his behalf. It was in the very midst of this unedifying scene, one perhaps unparalleled in the annals of London club life, that a club servant entered the room and handed a telegram to Sir Montague Bowden. Even the most sceptical there, even those whose brains were almost fuddled with the wrangling and the noise declared afterwards that a mysterious providence had ordained that the telegram should arrive at that precise moment. It had been sent to Sir Montague's private house in Londa Street. His secretary had opened it and sent it on to the club. As soon as Sir Montague had mastered the contents, he communicated them to the members of the club, and it seems that there had never been such excitement displayed in any assembly of sober Englishmen as was shown in that club room on this momentous occasion. The telegram had come all the way from the other end of Europe and had been sent by the august lady, in whose hands the precious necklace, about which there was so much pother in England and France, had just been safely placed. It ran thus. 
deeply touched by exquisite present just received through kind offices of Captain Saunders from English ladies. Kind thoughts and beautiful necklace, equally precious. Kindly convey my grateful thanks to all subscribers. Having read out the telegram, Sir Montague Bowden demanded apology from those who had impugned his honour, and I understand that he got an unqualified one. After that, male tongues were let loose. The wildest conjectures flew about as to the probable solution of what had appeared a mere more curious mystery than ever. By evening, the papers had got hold of the incident, and all those who were interested in the affair shook their heads and looked portentously wise. But the hero of the hour was certainly Captain Saunders. From having been voted either a knave or a fool or both, he was declared at once to be possessed of all the qualities which had made England great, prudence, astuteness, and tenacity. However, as a matter of fact, nobody knew what had actually happened. The august lady had the necklace, and the captain was returning to England without a stain on his character. But as to how these two eminently satisfactory results had come about, not even the wiseacres could say. Captain and Mrs. Saunders arrived in England a few days later, and everyone was agog with curiosity, and the poor things had hardly stepped out of the train before they were besieged by newspapermen and pressed with questions. The next morning, the express post and the daily thunderer came out, with exclusive interviews with Captain Saunders, who made no secret of the extraordinary adventure which had once more placed him in possession of the necklace. It seems that he and his wife, on coming out of the Madeleine Church on Easter Sunday, were hustled at the top of the steps by a man whose face they did not see, and who pushed past them very hastily and roughly. Arthur Saunders at once thought of his pockets, and looked to see if his note-case had not disappeared. But to his boundless astonishment, his hand came in contact with a long, hard parcel in the outside pocket of his overcoat, and this parcel proved to be the velvet case containing the Nissing necklace. Both he and his wife were flabbergasted at this discovery, and scarcely believing in this amazing piece of good luck, they managed, with the help of Mr. Hosberg, despite it being Easter Sunday, to obtain an interview with one of the great jewelers in the Rue de la Paix, who, well knowing the history of the missing necklace, was able to assure them that they had indeed been lucky enough to regain possession of their treasure. That same evening, they left by the train deluxe, having been fortunate enough to secure seats, needless to say that the necklace was safely stowed away inside Captain Saunders' breast pocket. All was indeed well that ended so well. But the history of the disappearance and reappearance of the pearl necklace has remained a baffling mystery to this day. Neither the Saunderses nor Mr. Hosberg ever departed one iota from the circumstantial story that they had originally told. And no one ever heard another word about the man with the walrus mustache and the gold-rimmed spectacles. The French police are still after him in connection with the assault on the Capitaine Saunders but no trace of him was ever found. To some people, this was a conclusive proof of guilt. 
But then, having stolen the necklace, why should he have returned it? Though the pearls were very beautiful, and there were a great number of them beautifully matched, there was nothing abnormal about them in either size or color. They could never be any difficulty for an expert thief to dispose of the pearls to continental dealers. The same argument would, of course, apply to Mr. Hosberg, whom some wiseacres still persisted in accusing. If he stole the necklace, why should he have restored it? Nothing could be easier than for a businessman who traveled a great deal on the continent to sell a parcel of pearls. And then there remained the unanswered questions. Why did Saunders take the pearls out of the strong room, and where was he taking them when he was assaulted and robbed? Did the man with the walrus mustache really call at the Majestic that night? And if he was innocent, why did he disappear? Why, why, why? The case had very much interested me at the time. But the mystery was a nine days wonder as far as I was concerned, and soon far more important matters than the temporary disappearance of a few rows of pearls occupied public attention. It was really only last year, when I renewed my acquaintance with the old man in the corner, that I bethought myself once more of the mystery of the pearl necklace, and I felt a desire to hear what the spook like creature's theory was upon the subject. <coughs> the pearl necklace, he said with a cackle. Oh, yes, it caused a, a great bit of a stir in its day, but people talked such a lot of irresponsible nonsense that thinking minds had not a chance of arriving at a sensible conclusion. No, I rejoined amiably, but you did. "'Yes, you are right there,' he replied. "'I knew well enough where the puzzle lay, "'but it was not my business to put the police on the right track. "'And if I had, <laughs> I should have been the cause of making two innocent and clever people "'suffer more severely than the guilty party.' "'Will you condescend to explain?' I asked with an indulgent smile. <laughs> Why should I not? he retorted, and once again his thin fingers started to work on the inevitable piece of string. It all lies in a nutshell and is easily understandable if we realize that old Pasquier, the man with the walrus mustache, was not the friend of the Saunderses, but their enemy. I frowned. Their enemy? "'An old pal, shall we say?' he retorted. "'Who knew something in the past history of one or the other of them "'that they did not wish their newest friends to know? "'Really, a blackmailer, who under the guise of comradeship "'and not infrequently at their fireside, "'watching an opportunity for extorting a heavy price "'for his silence and his goodwill.' <laughs> Thus he could worm himself into their confidence. He knew their private life. He heard about the necklace and decided that here was the long-sought-for opportunity at last. Think it all over, and you will see how well the pieces of that jigsaw puzzle fit together and make a perfect picture. Pasquier calls on the Saunterses, 
a day or two before their departure, and springs his infamous proposal upon them. For the time being, Arthur succeeds in giving him the slip. His journey is not yet. The necklace is not yet in his possession. But he knows the true quality of the blackmailer now, and he is on the alert. He begins by going to Sir Montague Bowden and begging him to entrust the mission to somebody else. Judging by the butler's evidence, he even makes a clean breast of his troubles to Sir Montague, <laughs> however makes light of them, and advises consultation with Mr. Hosberg, who would perhaps undertake the journey. In any case, it is too late to make fresh arrangements at this hour. Very reluctantly now, hoping for the best, the Saunderses make a start. But the blackmailer, too, is on the alert, and he succeeds in spying upon them and tracing them to the majestic in Paris. The situation now has become terribly serious, for the blackmailer has thrown off the mask and demands the necklace under threats which apparently the Saunderses did not dare defy. But they are both clever and resourceful. And as soon as Halsberg's arrival rids them temporarily of their tormentor, they put their heads together and invent a plot, which was destined to free them forever from the threats of Pasquier, and at the same time would enable them to honor the trust which had been placed in them by the committee. In any case... They had until the morrow to make up their minds. Remember the words which Mr. Hasberg overheard on the part of Pasquier. So long, old man, I'll wait until tomorrow. <laughs> anyway, Pasquier must have gone off that evening confident that he had Captain Saunders entirely in his power and that the wretched man would on the morrow hand over the necklace without demur. <laughs> Whether Arthur Saunders confided in Hosberg or not is doubtful personally, but I think not. I believe that he and Mary did the whole thing between them. Arthur, having parted from his brother-in-law, went back to the hotel, took the necklace out of the strong room, and then left it in Mary's charge. He threw the tin box away where it would surely be found again. Then he went as far as the Rue de Monsigny and crouched, seemingly unconscious, in the blind alley, having previously taken the precaution of saturating his handkerchief in chloroform. Thus, the two clever conspirators cut the ground from under the blackmailer's feet, for the latter now had the police after him for an assault which he might find very difficult to disprove, even if he cleared himself of the charge of having stolen the necklace. Anyway, he would remain a discredited man, and his threats could in the future be defied, because if he dared come out in the open after that, the public feeling would be so bitter against him for a crime which he had not committed that he would never be listened to if he tried to do the Captain Saunders an injury, 
and it was with the view of keeping public indignation at a boiling pitch against the supposed thief that the Saunders has kept up the comedy for so long. <laughs> to my mind, it was a very clever move. Then they came out with the story of the restoration of the necklace and became the heroes of the hour. <laughs> Think it over, the funny creature went on, as he finally stuffed his bit of string back into his pocket and rose from the table. Think it over, and you will realize at once that everything happened just as I have related, and that it is the only theory that fits with the facts that are known. You'll also agree with me, I think, that Captain and Mrs. Saunders chose the one way of ridding themselves effectually of a dangerous blackmailer. The police were after him for a long time, and they still believed that he had something to do with the theft of the necklace and the assault on Monsieur le Capitaine Saunders. But presently, 1914 came along, and... What became of the man with the walrus moustache, no one ever knew. What his nationality was, was never stated at the time, but whatever it was, it would, I imagine, be a bar against obtaining a visa on his passport for the purpose of visiting England and blackmailing Arthur Saunders. But it was a curious case. You have just heard The Mystery of the Missing Necklace by the Baroness Emma Orzi. And that is all for this edition of For the Love of Reading. The material read on this edition of For the Love of Reading was selected, reviewed, and edited by Linda Pack. This program is archived and available on the KZYX for the Love of Reading podcast on demand with the KZYX phone app or wherever you get your podcasts. And at lindapack.net, you will find information and links to all of the shows aired on For the Love of Reading. KZYX, For the Love of Reading, is a production of listener-supported community radio, KZYX and Z, public broadcasting from Mendocino County, California. On our website, kzyx.org, you will find links to all our podcasts, including KZYX Mendocino County Remembered, Oral Histories Read for You by Linda Pack. You can also stream live programming and show your support by clicking the red Donate button. This is Linda Pack. Thanks for listening.